Another Way to Play, episode 130. So we're always faced with choices, and these choices are tough. Now, obviously, we're going to have feelings. I mean, things are going to happen to us, and we're going to feel victimized, and that's completely normal. And, and you know, it's really important to say as well, this is we're talking about adults here, not children. Children deserve to be protected. This is Dr. Fleet Mall, author of Radical Responsibility. And if you want to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my good friend, Hans Strusina. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I'm your host, Hans Strusina, Olympic athlete turned top producing Bay Area realtor. I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. Twice a week, I talk with other high performers to share the lessons and inspiration that allowed them to blow the roof off their success. So get ready to have some fun, be inspired, and most importantly, learn the skills you need to win in your own life. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and if you're anything like me, someone along the line has probably told you that you need to take responsibility for your actions. Don't worry, today's guest is not just going to lecture you on uh, personal responsibility and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's actually pretty awesome conversation that I'm really excited to share with you. Today's guest is Fleet Mall. Uh, if you don't know who that is, he's the author of Radical Responsibility, which maybe sounds like it's a guilt trip, but it can guarantee it's absolutely not. As a young person, he had a kind of a dual life. He was studying Buddhism and mindfulness and then would once or twice a year run off and actually uh, smuggle drugs in a very small way. And it ended up catching up with him and he spent a total of 14 and a half years out of a 30-year sentence for that exact thing. Uh, During his time in prison, He started a number of national movements, uh, including teaching mindfulness and meditation in prisons, uh, which is still a nonprofit that he runs to this day. Um, But through that time and since, he has come up with this concept of radical responsibility, which is the concept of simply choosing how you respond to any given scenario. Uh, We go kind of deep into things that, let's just say, you didn't deserve um, and how one can apply radical responsibility to that because it's easy to say like, hey, I was speeding, I got a ticket, I got in a car accident, cause effect. But there are certain scenarios where, you know, someone gets ill from COVID-19 or something and it's not as clear and it's definitely not as easy to take responsibility for moving forward. But he kind of really unpacks that for us in today's conversation. If you get value out of this, please head over to iTunes or whatever player you're listening on and leave a rating and review because it really helps me get some critical feedback on how to keep improving the show as well as keeping the algorithm happy, because that's really the only way that we are going to continue to grow the show. So for those of you who've done that, thanks in advance. And if you're considering it, I uh, would really appreciate if you took just a couple of minutes and did that for me. So without any further ado, let's get into it with Fleet Mall. Fleet, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate you taking some time with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So before we started recording, we were kind of talking about all the different things you've got going on, but let's just distill it down into one question to kick this thing off, which is what is radical responsibility? Good question. So I I usually talk about it like this, that 
that it it's really voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life. And that includes, of course, those circumstances we see we had some part in creating or allowing or uh, as well as those that really we can't see that we had anything to do with at all, the ones that just landed on our head or landed in our lap. And when we're looking into what role we may have had in creating some of our circumstance or allowing a circumstance, that has nothing to do with, this model has absolutely nothing to do with blame. It's not about blaming others, obviously, but it's not about, it's not even one iota about blaming ourselves, and it's certainly not about blaming victims. We only look into whether I had any role in creating or allowing certain circumstances that I'm challenged by for the purpose of learning. Because if I can see, you know, how it unfolded or, you know, that I made that decision at that point or just, you know, how something unfolded or what I wasn't paying attention to, then I can do something different next time, get different results for for that process of learning and insight. But then even in those uh, situations where I can't see I had anything to do with it and everybody would agree then, well, how could I take ownership there? Well, what that means is I'm gonna own my choices in response to those circumstances. Because at some point, no matter how unjust the circumstance that has befallen me may be, maybe it's something really horrific that should never happen to anyone. But once it's in my life, it's in my life. And at some point the saying question is, what am I gonna do with it? What am I gonna do with it? Am I gonna let it take me down? Or am I going to, embrace choice and figure out what's the most creative way I can respond to this to move my own life forward in a, in a beneficial way for myself and others. As you were talking there, I mean, I was sort of struck by like, I mean, obviously we're in the midst of this pandemic and, you know, someone gets hit with some terrible disease or cancer or some crazy thing that no one saw coming. Um, as an example of like, okay, that is something that one maybe they made some bad life choices with their health or what have you. Maybe they didn't and they just got unlucky um, in, an, in an instance like that. Cause I think we can all understand, like I, I sped, I got in a car crash, like my fault, you know, but with something like that, like how do you go about it? And, and why would someone want to take responsibility for something that was totally out of their control? Like what benefit would they gain out of that um, in their own life? Exactly. The why is very important. So the why is because the only place we have any real personal power is with ourselves. And so embracing radical responsibility, it's not about, it's certainly, it's not about blaming ourselves in any way. It's not about being heroic. It's not about taking on some great burden. It's simply the decision to focus my energy where it can do the most good. And that's on my choices in terms of how I'm gonna to respond to whatever circumstances I may be facing. So let's say I get really unlucky and, uh, and you know, somehow I end up with COVID-19, right? And I'm ill and I'm struggling. I'm going through this whole thing. You know, maybe, I, maybe I, I'm pretty clear that it was somebody else's irresponsibility, somebody else in my network. But of course, I got to choose that I was choosing to interact with them. But you know, even if it really does just seem like really bad luck, uh, okay, what am I going to do with that? You know, what, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to focus on, on doing everything I can to you know, conserve my energy and take care of myself and and do the best I can to get through that illness, right? Or even let's say I'm there. I mean, this is going to get really extreme, but let's say I'm there on a ventilator, and you know, maybe I'm going to die. Uh, what state of mind do I want to die in? Do I want to die in a state of anger and resentment and fear and terror, or do I want to take the time? Okay, I'm going to make peace with myself, make peace with life, and make peace with 
any higher power that that I relate with and 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 try to find a way to finish my life in a good way. You know, so we're always faced with choices and these choices are tough. Now, obviously we're going to have feelings. I mean, things are going to happen to us and we're going to feel victimized and that's completely normal. And, and, you know, it's really important to say as well, this is, we're talking about adults here, not children. Children deserve to be protected. And we're really focusing on ourselves. This is not about telling others what to do. And we know that really terrible things happen to adults and, and it's, completely normal for someone to feel they've been victimized and and they may need to have that really validated and you know it's, it's certainly about not going to someone who's had some horrible thing happen to them and say hey you gotta you gotta embrace radical responsibility and get off your victim trip it's not about that at all that would be very unkind and very unskillful so they may need to have that validated but i think we could all understand that if somebody who has something really terrible happen to them, a serious physical violation or emotional violation, a terrible tragedy of some kind, if, if they remain stuck there, uh, as, as reasonable as it may be, you know, and as much compassion as we're going to want to feel for their situation, if they remain stuck there, it's going to be very limiting to the rest of their life. If they get stuck in feeling victimized and stuck in anger or bitterness or helplessness, and they can't find some way to embrace their situation to move forward, it's going to be very limiting to their life. So the question is, you know, where do I want to place my energy? Where can it do the most good? So, so that's where the payoff, it's really the only place we have any real power in life. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. So I'm struck by what you're talking about is generally speaking, continuing to move forward and, and not necessarily because there's so many negative things that could happen to a person in the world of which they didn't deserve or ask for, yet it, they are there. And and it's about what I'm understanding is embracing that to some degree and then moving forward with with that as a new set, a, a way to make decisions and take action and, and try and live your life with this unfortunate situation and try and, it sounds like, make the best out of it. And there's countless stories of how people who have experienced terrible tragedies have found a way to transform it for themselves and others, very often dedicating themselves to prevent this from happening to other people. Famously, the organization MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, was started by a a mother who lost a son to a drunk driver, to a drunk driving accident. It was another drunk driver that struck her son's car and she lost her son. And so the way she transformed that for herself was able to move forward in her life and re-empower herself in her life uh, was to do that. And and in doing so, she actually helped a lot of other people. She's helping prevent, preventing that from happening. So that brings, and that dignifies the loss and, and honors her son and, and brings dignity. So that's just one example. But there, but again, that may be a heroic thing to do. So, you know, if, for, if someone who has really experienced some terrible tragedy or some terrible injustice is kind of stuck in that, it's not about going and telling them what to do, but we certainly don't want to get in their way. I mean, what happens sometimes is, is the person who's experienced some kind of tragedy, they're kind of ready to try to move forward, but they got everybody else around. No, 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 you're a victim. Just be a victim, right? And so we don't want to get in the way of other people, but it's not about telling them what to do either. It's really about what are we modeling ourselves? I'll give you another example of how this uh, plays out. Because a lot of times when there are conflicts, we might think, well, I'll take my part of the responsibility, but, you know, so-and-so's got to take theirs, you know? I mean, it just seems fair, right? And, and we have this sense of fairness and, so, you know, let's say you and I had some business agreement and it just went south on us, right? And we're both really hot. We're, we're ready to go to war. We're ready to lawyer up. Maybe we're ready to go to fisticuffs, you know? 
and um, we're both really upset about it. And we have a mutual friend who says, no, 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 don't do that. I know this mediator. Go see this mediator. You know, work it through. You're going to spend a fortune on lawyers and you, you don't, you don't want to, you know, end up in jail. Just go, go to this mediator. So we do that. So the mediator interviews both of us separately and, uh, and then brings us together and says, boy, you know, I don't know. You guys are both really compelling salespeople and storytellers. And it's kind of a he said, he said thing. I don't know what to do, but, but, but we do have the videotape. So I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, here's my idea. I'm going to put together a focus group of a dozen really smart people, objective people who don't know either one of you, couldn't give a hoot about either one of you. And we're going to show them the videotape and see what they have to say. So we both kind of, oh, okay. I mean, I, I feel confident because I know it's really all your fault. And yeah. you're probably a little nervous because you kind of realize it's your fault. But <laughs> but, uh, but no, we both, we both say, okay, we'll, we'll let that roll and play out. And uh, so at some point, the mediator calls us back in the office and you know, and turns to me and says, well, Fleet, you know, you know, I have to say that, that the folks group did agree that, that it was, uh, that he's got shoulder more of the blame, that it's really more his fault. And, and I said, oh, I'm glad you sound such a brilliant group of people. And they realize it's all his fault. The media says, well, Fleet, they did say, you know, you, you have some, you got to carry some of the responsibility here. In fact, they think it's like, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30. And, so I'm like, well, I don't really believe it. But as long as they believe it was mostly his fault, you know, and the media keeps working me up. Like, okay, okay, okay. I probably did have some small part to play. I don't know if it's 30 or 40%, but okay, I'll own it. That I, but I still feel vindicated because it's mostly his fault. And I feel good about that. So does that really make sense for me to feel good about that? If I'm convinced, I'm unhappy by definition, right? This is a conflict. I'm really, I'm really upset. I'm really unhappy. I'm suffering. And I'm convinced it's, 70% your fault, 60% your fault, whatever. If I'm really convinced of that, how much of my power am I giving away to you? A pretty substantial amount. Yeah. I mean, 60 or 70% at least, but you could almost say all of it because by definition, I'm suffering. Can I control you? Yeah, definitely. I can control you? Control? Like through suffering? No. Can I control you? You to me? No. No, I can't control you. So if I'm, I'm suffering and I'm convinced it's your fault to whatever degree, who did I just put in charge of my internal state? Me. Yeah, I just put you in charge of my internal state. My internal state doesn't get to change until you change your behavior. So I just put you in charge of my internal state. Thus, I'm giving my power away to you. And we do this all the time. We all do it all the time. We give away our power to the weather, to, to our, our family members, to coworkers, to our bosses, to to the government, to politicians, to leaders, to all the people we're upset about and feeling victimized by. And we feel I'm upset, it's their fault. And so who's running the show in my internal state? They are. Instead of taking ownership for my own internal state. You know, I, I had the opportunity to uh, interview um, Byron Katie for our upcoming uh, summit, The Best Year of Your Life, that'll be in January. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's, she's really amazing. She teaches something called The Work and really helps people deconstruct all the mental frames that create their suffering. And she says, basically, when we believe our thoughts, we suffer. When we believe our thoughts, we suffer. And she has this process. She starts with, you know, let's say I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, you know, I'm really suffering. It's because my business partner's a jerk and, and he's dishonest. And so she says, the first thing he asks, is that really true? And I said, well, of course it's true. I told you it's true. Can you be absolutely sure that's true? And she'll just stay with that question, stay with that question until you finally get to that place. Well, no, I can't absolutely say that's true. And that cracks open the door 
And through that process of inquiry, you start really questioning your assumptions and your beliefs and your thought patterns. And then at some point, you know, you start trying, well, but when you do feel that's true, how do you feel? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pissed off, I'm upset, and I feel victimized. Well, let's try this one. Let's try this one. Let's say, uh, try on that, actually, my partner is uh, an honest person just trying to get their needs met like you. Now, if try that statement on how does that feel? What, what does that create inside of you, right? So it's this deconstructive process. But what it's really all about is taking ownership for our own attitudes, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, the, re, the results of our behaviors, the, the consequences our behaviors create for us, the results they create for us, and the impact we have on others. Taking take ownership for all that, not to blame ourselves, not even to be heroic. It's, it's actually in our own enlightened self-interest because it's the only place we have any real power. And again, we may need to you know, spend some time kvetching and feeling victimized and go through some of that, but you know, personally, it happens to me all the time, but I don't spend very much time there. I recognize it and shift because it, I realize it's a complete waste of my energy. It's, it's, I'm struck by the, this concept of sort of a 90 second rule, like be upset for 90 seconds. You stub your toe as a simple example, you curse, you swear, you storm around the house, stupid table, this clumsy, that, and all, and then you got to move on and go bandage up your toe and, and get on with your day. Right. It's same thing. Yeah, that's a pretty good rule. Although I would say I would try to shorten it over time in relation to how serious the, the thing is causing the upset. Because, you know, if we if we say, okay, I'm always going to give my permission, self-permission to do that, then we're always going to do it. You know, because neurons that fire together, wire together, that becomes a habit, right? So over time, I think we can reduce the amount of upset. And that's why I integrate with, you know, this growth mindset model of radical responsibility, radical ownership, tra- mind training and mindfulness training. Because we know that mindfulness training actually supports neuroplasticity and changing the brain. And also it, it, uh, the neural networks in, in the prefrontal cortex that are like the brakes for our emotions. Like, you know, something, we stub our toe and we're upset. Okay, do we stay upset for 30 seconds? Yeah, normal. If I'm upset an hour later, there's, there's something wrong with that, right? And so that means that the neural networks that are like the brakes for my emotions are very weak. Those neural networks have gotten very weak. And people that are prone to being upset a lot and they're always upset and always complaining and, you know, got that, you know, it's literally, if you did MRI scans, you'd see that those neural networks that are like the brakes for the negative emotions are, are, have weakened. And mind training and mindfulness training strengthens those so we can more quickly let go of some kind of upset and come back into our, our best self, our window of tolerance or zone of resilience. And, and by training ourselves to really own what we're creating and seeing that's where our power is and then using various forms of mind training, we can reduce the amount of time that we need to spend in feeling upset. Now, there's nothing wrong with those emotions. They're normal. Emotions are valid. But it's how much time do I want to spend there? The neural network or the neural connections that you talk about that were weaked or weakened, is that just simply they haven't been used or are they weak relative to other pathways that have been like a more well-worn path? Yeah, they're, they're weak relative to other pathways. You know, basically, you know, when we repeat behaviors, that strengthens certain neural networks in the brain. If we stop doing those behaviors, they weaken. They don't go away, but they weaken. If we replace them with different behaviors, that can create neural, new neural networks in the brain. And, you know, one way to think about this, is our neural networks in the brain are literally like pathways and roadways. And so, 
you know, we have like ruts in the brain and, and usually we associate those with negative habits. Like I'm stuck in a rut. Right. And, and, you know, no matter what I do, I just, I just find myself, I end up doing that again and again, even though I don't want to, I keep doing it. Right. That's like a rut. And then we have the notion of grooves, like having like a, a well-grooved golf swing, right? We have positive associations with that. If something's groovy or a jazz musician, you're in the groove, right? Well, that's still the same idea of these neural pathways, but in a more, with a more positive spin on it. These are the habits we want to have, right? These are the neural pathways that we want to be robust. And that really, we have control over that because of this phenomenon known as neuroplasticity. The brain is actually continually changing and restructuring itself based on what we expose it to and based on our behaviors. So by changing behaviors, we can change the brain and then the brain will support those new behaviors and we find ourselves naturally operating in new ways and getting different results. How can someone, because that the concept of habit, like you've just done it 10,000 times and you just kind of go there by default, but the mindfulness concept is like you're aware consciously of what it, of that habit and that action that you're taking and that falling back into that well-worn path. Like how can someone listening to this, you know, start to identify those for themselves and say, okay, maybe I, I, that isn't constructive and I do need to, to find a new groove, but it's going to take some time to, to identify that and to create the groove. How can they start that process? Well, mindfulness for me is really the key. I mean, there are various approaches to habit change and behavior change and, and whether they literally call it mindfulness, it would probably involve some kind of mindfulness. But I think embracing a formal mindfulness practice where we sit down five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, if you can do 20 minutes, if you can do a half hour, if you can do an hour, all the better, the more, the better. And uh, basic mindfulness practice, usually you have a, you sit up with a good posture, so it's wakeful, you're awake, and you try to keep your focus on the body and the breath, actually feeling the body and feeling the breath. And of course the mind wanders, that's what the mind does. And when it wanders, you bring it back. It wanders again, you bring it back again. It wanders again, you bring it back again. And every time you bring the mind back to the moment, because when you're feeling the body physically, when you're feeling the breath physically, that's here, that's right here, right now, that's in the moment. So every time you come back, it's like you're doing another rep, right? You're building that muscle of mindfulness, which is literally you're building neural networks in the brain. You're training the brain to wake itself up. You're increasing your ability to stay focused, have good concentration, be in the moment. And then that allows you to recognize you know, what Viktor Frankl, the author of Man's Search for Meaning, who someone else who portrayed this incredible growth mindset and level of radical responsibility, he was in the death camp at Auschwitz and still saw that you have choices no one can take away from you, even in the most horrendous, most horrific conditions anybody could imagine, right? The death camp at Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And he said, the one thing that no one can ever take away from us, the choice no one can ever take away from us, is the choice over the attitude we bring to a situation, the mindset we bring to a situation. Now that can be well-earned because if we're habitually responding with a victim mindset and anger, it's gonna be tough to turn that around in a moment. But if we practice, we can turn it around. So Viktor Frankl talked about recognizing that gap, that moment between the stimulus and the response, between the stimulus and the response. Therein lies our freedom. That is human consciousness, that is what human destiny is really all about is taking ownership in that gap to where we can actually choose rather than just living a completely habitual reactive life. You know, physically, biologically, we're set up 
for fear and survival-based life because job one for any species is survival. So our whole biology is set up to focus on survival and we're driven by fear, but we're also conscious human beings and we have the ability to override that, not to our detriment, but override that because we don't need to be in a state of fear and panic and survival all the time. And it's not helpful when there really isn't a saber-toothed tiger at the mouth of the cave or a bear at the door. So we can, we can override that and, and operate in a different way and learn to recognize those gaps because that's where all of our freedom is. That's, you know, I recognize, you know, for example, you know, let's say I'm feeling a bit anxious, right? So that's the stimulus. I'm feeling a bit anxious. And my usual behavior is I reach for a cigarette, right? And, uh, and I take a, I, I like cigarette, take a hit, and I get this immediate relief from my anxiety, right? Or I reach for a drink or I reach for a pill or some other coping mechanism, coping mechanism that's not healthy, right? So I have the stimulus, the behavior, and then the reward, right? So if I'm caught in that pattern and I don't have much awareness, I'm gonna have the cigarette in my hand before I even know what's going on. I'm gonna have the drink in my hand before I know what's going on, right? I'm gonna pop the pill before I even realize what's happening. But with mindfulness, I can recognize the anxiety. Oh, yeah, and feel, oh, I feel myself wanting to reach for the cigarette. I feel myself, you know, I recognize this pattern and I see there's a gap in here where I could actually make a new choice. And if I start making new choices, the old habitual pattern will lessen and the new pattern will emerge. This is something called the habit loop. So with any habit, you have a stimulus and then you have a behavior and then you have a reward, right? So another example, one I've worked with myself is, uh, you know, I'm working all the time and, and, and a lot of times I'm working on my computer and, and really cranking out stuff. And, and so uh, I'll suddenly, after working a few hours, I'll get this drop in energy and I just feel like it's just brain fog and I'm just, you know, and, you know, so what do I, I want to reach for some coffee, right? Or I want to reach for some energy snack or something, right? To get my energy back. So I do that and I get my energy back. I can refocus and I go on. So that becomes a habit. So I'm wanting to change that habit because most energy snacks really aren't that good for you and I'm not wanting to drink coffee all day. So I'm replacing the behavior. I, when I feel that brain fog coming on and that lost drop of energy, I stand up, I go drink a glass of water, I do some stretching and some deep breathing, then I sit back down, I have the renewed energy, the renewed focus, and I can go back to work. So I same cue, different behavior, same or better reward, but now better result because now I'm using a behavior that's healthy uh, rather than one that's going to be unhealthy in the long run. So that, that's how we can start. And, and it, to the extent that I'm doing that, the old pattern, the neural networks that were really representative of how that old pattern function, they, they literally physically become lessened. They lose uh, neuronal uh, matter. And, and the new one I'm placing in becomes more robust. It literally changes our brain. Wow. I've gone and talked to a lot of people, read a lot of books about mindfulness and just the concept of it, but I really just love the way you've broken all of that down. And I have to say that as you were describing it there, I was sort of reminded of uh, that poem Invictus and how it finishes up. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And, and it was, and when you just described like the human what, how did you put it? Like the human element or the human um, freedom is between input and output or uh, cause and effect, right? And how you process and stimulus and response. Yeah. There you go. Stimulus and response. Thank you. Um, fascinating. And this is not a new idea. You know, um, 
Marcus Aurelius, often called the last good Roman emperor and, and one of the Stoic philosophers. And he has a whole book of aphorisms that have been, there's lots of translations and I highly recommend that. Anyway, there's one, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but uh, he said something like, you know, uh, most people uh, believe that their destiny is determined by their circumstances. Most people believe their destiny is determined by their life circumstances. But he said, that's actually not true. Our destiny is created by our response to those circumstances, by our response to those circumstances. And that's what we can own. And that takes mindfulness because otherwise we're just going to be reacting and reacting and creating the same old results with the same old habitual patterns. But if we, if we work with, you know, becoming more conscious and more awake and train ourselves to be more awake, then we can recognize the opportunity to make a different choice and respond consciously to circumstances rather than reacting unconsciously to circumstances. And then we do actually become the captain of our own ship. And I like to describe it as being in a self-leadership position with ourselves. Rather, rather than letting the, letting the, rather than having the world run my life, you know, really being more in the driver's seat of my own life, or at least in a co-pilot seat. And this is really fascinating, and and I wonder how you got into this area of study because you've clearly gone deep and done a lot of work on it, just on um, whatever you've you've done in so the books and the products and the courses and stuff you've created. But like, where did that come from? Like, how did that journey actually begin for you? Well, this it really became a rubber meets the road kind of situation. I was interested in, in my, in mind the whole life. I majored in psychology in college, uh, but I graduated from high school in 1968, classic angry young man and one of the most tumultuous years in our country's history uh, and went headlong into the counterculture and drug, sex and rock and roll, drug, you know, all the drug experimentation and all the craziness and radical politics, all the rest and became very alienated and eventually left the country, was living as an expat in South America and just looking for something real and authentic and discovered a lot of things, but but then justified getting into small-scale drug smuggling to continue living outside the system. And I justified that saying the whole system's hypocritical and, you know, they're wrong, I'm right, and, and all this us versus them thinking. And and so, you know, I, I didn't try to get rich at it, but I did it enough that I could kind of live outside the system. And but eventually I, I wanted to, yeah, I was also always a spiritual seeker and, and uh, I was trying to pursue a, a path of meditation and, uh, and I got focused in on a particular tradition. And then I found out about this university being started in Boulder, Colorado back in 1974 by this great Tibetan meditation master. I just knew I had to go there. So I did. And, and uh, uh, I got my master's degree in, in a three-year clinical psychology program. And I also became a student of this Tibetan teacher and trained and studied deeply, but I still had all this shadow stuff going on. I was still funding my lifestyle by once or twice a year, disappearing, keeping it secret from my teacher and others, but disappearing and doing a smuggling run. And I was smuggling cocaine and I was still, you know, some of the time I spent a good part of the year doing really good stuff and another part of the year being this kind of crazy person. And I self-medicated around the cognitive dissonance. So, you know, that was just a crazy path. I knew it had to end, but, uh, before I could untangle it all, I earned my way into a 14-year federal prison sentence. So I landed in prison, fortunately with a lot of training, uh, and I realized very quickly that I was in this really crazy world where everybody had a complete victim story. It was people were angry, embittered, and many of them were victimized their whole lives, and that's how they ended up in crime to begin with. But 
I didn't want to come out of prison angry and bitter with a victim story. I didn't even want to live that way in prison. I knew I was going to be there a long time. In fact, originally I was sentenced to 30 years with no parole. And after my appeal went through the court, it took about three years, but they knocked off one count, which reduced it to 25. And fortunately, under what they call the old sentencing laws, you get a lot of good time for staying out of trouble. So I would have had to serve 18 and a half once it was reduced to 25. I had to serve 14 and a half, which I did serve because I managed to stay out of trouble. But when I first got sentenced, I thought 30 years. I, I was 35 years old. I thought I packed the papers that I next day said I'd be 65. I thought my life was over. And there I am in prison. And, you know, what? And I was also really motivated to transform my life because I'd had a lot of very positive influences. And my son was nine years old and I would I just hit a wall with what I'd done to him and all the selfish decisions I've been making for so long, putting his life at risk. And now my son was gonna grow up without a dad. So I became radically motivated to get all the negativity out of my life and and at least try to leave a better legacy for my son than just that his dad went to prison or his daddy. I had no surety that I'd survive prison, right? Uh, so I, be, I was radically motivated, but I also saw that if I didn't proactively do otherwise, I would end up angry and bitter with a big victim story. And I did, that's not who I wanted to be, even in prison. So I realized that the only way through that experience and beyond that experience for me was going to be to embrace radical responsibility ownership for having got myself there, what I was going to do with myself there and how I was going to get myself through and out. And, you know, it was like 200% responsibility. And, you know, one of the reasons I got the big sentence I got is because I refused to testify against anybody. And it was, I wasn't trying to be a tough guy or stand up guy. I was, I'm a Buddhist and one of a, I just don't believe in that somebody else should do my time. Right. You know, I that just was against my values. So I, I didn't testify. So they made me the, the so-called kingpin and made deals with everybody else. I did a lot of people's time in the end. So I could have been focused on all that resentment. You know, when, when, you know, the government, when they, when they take you to trial, they don't play by the rules. <laughs> They, they, they play hardball, right? And they, they lie, cheat, and steal to convict you, you know? And so, you know, and, and, you know, maybe they should. I don't know. I don't want to get political here. But, but you know, there's, there's plenty to be angry about. I could have focused on all that. I had close, supposed close friends who had really stuck the knife at my back. I, I decided that I was just going to drop all that on the spot. I didn't want to think of, I didn't want to waste any time thinking about any of that. I wanted to focus. I got myself in here. I got to get myself through and out of this. And it's completely up to me what I do with this situation. And that's really where, where this model was born in depth. And it really served me because I was able to use that time not only to transform my own life, but to create two national movements and all kinds of new programs and things that are still having big impact in the world. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back, but just because to point to what's possible. I was in a maximum security prison, the most helpless, powerless situation you could possibly imagine yourself be in. And I was able to create the first, co-create with others, the first prison hospice program in the world, and then start an, an organization and turn that into a national movement. My focus on meditation, I taught meditation for 14 years. I turned that into an organization, Prison Mindfulness Institute, which is a very large nonprofit today, bringing mindfulness into the criminal justice and public safety sphere around the world. And all that came out of every day focusing on one simple question. You know, maybe this sucks. Maybe it's really unjust. Maybe the guards are dirt balls or what, you know, or at least acting that way. Maybe the criminal justice system is totally unjust. Maybe I got way over prosecuted. Maybe I got way much more time than I should have gotten, whatever, you know, and forgetting about that and focusing on one simple question. What can I do? Here I am. What can I do? 
what's the most creative thing I can do in each moment to move my life forward in a way that's beneficial for myself and others. What a story, man. I appreciate you breaking that down and sharing it with us because it's, uh, it's something that you clearly lived for yourself first and then, and then have identified how to help others through this same pattern, whether it's something as extreme as in prison or just a, a personal trauma that they're having. It's, it sounds like it's kind of the neural pathways and what have you work the same way, regardless of if you're a convicted criminal or you're getting over a trauma of, of, or an unjust business deal or some, some such thing. And, and there's a science to being able to be mindful and, and all of that sort of thing. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Absolutely. You know, I got out of prison 21 years ago, broke. Um, actually, I owed the IRS $300,000 because they'd assessed that for what they said I made in the, being involved in smuggling. And uh, I was almost 50 years old, just short of my 50th birthday, uh, serious criminal record. And, you know, what am I going to do? You know, not easy to get a life started at that point. But I spent 14 years preparing for that moment. So I got out and within six months had a management consulting practice. And my first client paid me 5000 a month retainer. And I've been doing business consulting ever since. The nonprofit I started when I was in prison uh, continued. I, I kept building it. I did it pro bono. didn't take a salary for years. I do take a salary now, but for the first 10 years, I just did it pro bono and built out my, my business practice. But I, you know, for the last 21 years, I've been traveling around the world, teaching meditation and growth mindset, radical responsibility and so forth, and been able to add a lot of value to life and just have a fabulous life. And uh, that all came out of that, uh, that approach and that decision. Well, I appreciate, again, everything you've shared with us today, your story, your knowledge. Um, and I, gosh, I could sit here all day and continue having this conversation, but I want to respect the rest of your afternoon here and transition us into the last section of the show that's called the Focus Five, which I ask every guest the same five questions on every single show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Sounds feels like a game show. I've got to be on here. Okay. <laughs> First question is, what book have you gifted most often? Probably uh, Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior, which is an amazing book about just the notion of fearlessness uh, and living a fearless uh, life based on gentleness and non-aggression and, and genuineness. And uh, it was my uh, first spiritual teacher, the Tibetan master, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche. So that book, it's called Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior. It's an amazing book and I've given it to a lot of people. If you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? Wow, alive or dead, that really, <laughs> really, that really expands the, uh, the horizons quite a bit. Um, my goodness. Well, you know, since I've been on the Buddhist path for so many years, I'd, I'd almost have to say, you know, the historical Buddha, but that's going back so far. I might, you know, some of my heroes in life have been some of the great peacemakers like uh, Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. So I, I would I would certainly love to have a conversation uh, with one of them because uh, they both overcame so much in their lives. I probably would choose Nash, uh, Nelson Mandela. You know, when I got out of, when I was knew I was getting out of prison, I read his book. Um, and I won't be able to think of the name now, something about the long, so anyway, it, it was his autobiography. And, and so uh, I read that because, you know, he spent 24 years in prison, something like that. And, and, and like a long, like 18 years of that, or maybe longer 
was spent on Robbins Island, literally busting rocks, literally breaking rocks. And he came out of prison. This incredible statesperson was able to take his country out of apartheid and through this process of, of truth and reconciliation and healing. And so, you know, I, I would love to talk to him. Yeah. What is one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on? Well, I don't know about most people, but I, I really believe in this model of radical responsibility. And I've even heard some teachers who, you know, teach something similar. They say, my approach goes too far. It's like, you know, they, they're, because they're so afraid that it's going to become self-blame. And, and I actually believe that radical responsibility and radical ownership is completely possible, absolutely free of self-blame. You know, I think a lot of people would say that's just too high of a bar. You know, it's too high of a bar. And, uh, but why would we want anything in our life but the highest bar that we can reach towards? Yeah, agreed. What is your morning routine like? Give us a glimpse of how you like to start your day. Yeah, well, this is something I really work at. So I wake up and uh, it's, it depends on whether uh, my wife, uh, Sophie, is awake yet. And if she needs to sleep in a little bit, I'll actually get out of bed and go in the other bedroom. But if she's awake and getting up, I start uh, my exercise right there. I do uh, about 300 crunches right there in bed. I do spinal twists. I do some other stretching. I do a half bridge pose and do some fire breathing. So I do all that even before I get out of bed. Then I get out of bed, make the bed. Uh, always, I've been, you know, I, at one point I was going to do some seminars called Make Your Bed, right? And I, I think somebody actually has a book out called Make Your Bed because it's just like you get your day off to a start. You look back, your bed's made. I mean, it's the only way to start your day. So I make the bed. Uh, then I get down on the floor and I'm doing push-ups and, and stretches and more yoga stretches and, uh, and squats and things like that. So I do about a half hour of exercise. Then I go in and, uh, you know, brush my teeth, do my shower and all that. And then uh, Sophie and I head for our meditation room. We have a special room set up for our meditation practice. And uh, we make some tea. We head in there. And depending on how much time we have and how disciplined we were about getting to sleep the night before and getting up that morning, we do anywhere from a half hour minimum to an hour and a half. Uh, and most days it's probably around an hour, a little more than an hour but somewhere between 30 minutes and 90 minutes of our meditation practices. And we do a number of different types of mind training meditation practices within our Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Then we go down and uh, we have breakfast. Now, a, a couple of other elements that I'm, I've been trying to put in, I, I, once I get down there, I drink two glasses of water right off the bat because we're very uh, dehydrated at that, uh, at that point after night. And, and I really focus on, healthy hydration. So I drink two glasses of water right off the bat. Then I, I pour a third glass of water and I put a, a, this green, uh, you know, amazing greens or one of those things, uh, green vibrance powder, green powder in there. And I have that. And then, you know, we prepare breakfast, a very, very nutritious breakfast to get ourselves off to a, a really healthy, good start. Now, a couple other things I'm starting to add in there. Well, for two months now at my shower, I, I take my hot shower, you know, when, I, when I'm finished, I turn that off. And then I turn on the cold water and I stand under the cold water. And, and at first it was 10 seconds then it was 20 seconds and 30 seconds. I'm up to about 40 seconds and I've done it every day now for, for two months. Now I tried to get that started before, but I just wasn't really committed to it. I finally got committed to it because my, my body does not want to do that. No, none of our bodies want to get under that cold water, but it's like, I just turn it on and I just say to myself, one, two, three, and I do it. And one of the reasons I, it's very healthy for you. It's very healthy for you to do that in lots of different ways physiologically, and it really wakes you up. 
But uh, at the same time, that means I'm in charge, right? I'm, I'm not going to let my, you know, comfort-seeking, pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding, you know, instinctual biology run the show. I'm in charge. So body, get under the cold water. And I do that. And, you know, it just increases my overall sense of competence and competency and willpower. It's very healthy for you. So I built that in. The other thing I'm, um, I'm trying to build in, because we have our meditation hall upstairs. And so sometimes if Sophie goes down to make the tea, I don't, because she often showers, but the way we are, sometimes she showers before I do. And, but anyway, I'm trying to go down regardless of whether she already went down and I'm going down and drinking at least one glass of water with uh, minerals and salt in it uh, and lemon in it. And I want to do that right off before I even have any tea and go to my meditation. Because again, uh, it really sets your body up in a good way for the day. And it's, uh, and it's overcoming that dehydration that we experienced the night before. So, you know, all that takes place somewhere between 6.30 and, and 9 o'clock. And at 9 o'clock, I'm ready to, to begin my, day, my work day. But so, you know, it's anywhere from two to two and a half hours of focused on my morning ritual that sets me up to have a powerful day. That's awesome. I, I love every bit of that. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing. What is the best place that we can connect with you, find your book, find out about your courses, all that good stuff online? Great. Well, for the book, you can go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And there you'll see all about the book and you read all the accolades by people like Dan Siegel and Tarbrock and Jack Kornfield and Rick Hansen and many other best-selling authors. And right there, you can choose to order it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. With, there's four or five options there. So you can also just go to Amazon if you want. But, uh, but I, I would encourage people to go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com because you can learn about the book. You can even get the first chapter for free there. So uh, that's for the book. Then for my online courses and the virtual summits and so forth, it's heartmindinstitute.co, .co, not .com, but just .co, heartmindinstitute.co, www.heartmindinstitute.co. So that's where all my online courses are and the virtual summits we're doing, like the Best Year of Your Life Summit, which will go live January 19th, as well as the last summit we did in May is up there. Is, uh, you can get the, the lifetime access package of that summit amazing summit with 47 global thought leaders talking about becoming more personally, uh, collectively, societally, systemically resilient. Um, then you can also go to just my regular website to learn about lots of my different activities, which is fleetmall.com, fleetmall.com. And then lastly, I'll point to the prison work. If somebody's interested in our mindfulness-based prison work, uh, you can go to prisonmindfulness.org, prisonmindfulness.org, and find all about our work there. Awesome. Well, we'll link up to all of that down in the show notes. So it's easy to find in case you forgot any of the stuff at the beginning. Fleet, appreciate you being on the show. This has been really awesome and uh, just incredibly informative. I've learned an awful lot today in the last you know, several uh, 20, 30, 40 minutes, however long we've been on here. So really appreciate you. Uh, thanks for being here and good luck with all of your endeavors going forward. My pleasure, and I wish really the best to your audience. We're all living through really challenging times, and mindset is everything. So if you want to get different results in your life or really grow and thrive, focus on the mindset first. That is a wrap for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to connect with Fleet in any of the number of things that he's involved with, I've got all of that linked up down in the show notes, as always. And if you're over on Instagram and you want to connect with me there, outside of this podcast, I'm at Chief Sna also linked up down below. 
Uh, so guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you're getting value, you know what to do. Leave us a rating and review. Uh, thank you in advance for taking that time. I really appreciate it. It means an awful lot to me. So without any further ado, we're going to get it on out of here. This is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last. <laughs>